Wow, that was a cool video. Um, if you got the email of the person that you'd like to get connected with, uh, you're, you're welcome to do that. There's also these serve cards in the pew back in front of you. So uh, feel free to take advantage of that. So uh, I get the real privilege of opening God's word with you. I'm Keith Hubbard. I'm an elder here. And I'm also a, a professor in my day job over at SFA. Um, we're, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be this semester. Am I ringing just a little bit? Yeah? Ring, 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 ring. Um, maybe over here is better. Uh, so really, back in May, I, I said to the elders, you know, if, if the Lord hasn't provided a, a senior pastor by, by fall, I've been in love, honestly, with the Sermon on the Mount for about 20 years. And it would be so fun to study that together. I, I have found so much life in these words. I've, I've learned so much about the Lord, learned about myself. It'd be pretty amazing. So um, here we are. It's fall. They took me up on it. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, this is just a really profoundly wonderful passage of Scripture. It's kind of Jesus' kickoff teaching of the whole New Testament. Um, it, it's in Matthew 5, if you want to flip there. But do you know that the Sermon on the Mount is more written on than any other text in all of Scripture? Uh, so this is something that in the last 2,000 years people have wrestled with, they've wondered at, they've been frustrated by, and it, is, it talks about, you know, what, what does it look like to live a right life? And, and people actually have fairly different sort of takes on what that looks like, um, all the way from sort of uh, Martin Luther said, this standard is so high, so perfect, that really the design is to make you say, I am incapable of this, and just to fall on God's grace, and to say, <laughs> it's hopeless. And then sort of at the other end, there's, there's an interpretation that, man, this is a picture of the fullness of God's law. When, when uh, David writes, you know, your word is a lamp unto my feet. He's talking about not just sort of the 600 plus commands in the Old Testament. He's talking about sort of the entirety, the beauty of God's um, instruction to us about his heart, about what is best for us. So there's sort of this, this continuum there. And uh, by way of introduction, I want to sort of start just a couple of verses earlier. I want to... Um, I want to point you to uh, chapter 4, verse 24, okay? Um, oh, I think before that, actually, I had a picture up. It's so widespread, widely written about, I was reading to my two-year-old, and I saw this picture. So, yeah, it's even written about in children's books. How about that? I discovered that over the summer. Okay, so, by way of introduction, this is leading up to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, okay? And this is what Matthew writes. News about him, that's Jesus, spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill from various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and par the paralyzed. He healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, 
and then we enter into Jesus' words. So I want to sort of paint that picture for you. There are thousands and thousands of people following Jesus, trying to, trying to get a glimpse of this guy who's teaching really interesting different things, who's healing people. And Jesus has a really interesting teaching predicament. The teaching predicament is this. He's got thousands of people that aren't necessarily committed. You know, imagine thousands of people there listening. You know, I mean, there are Pharisees, there are tax collectors. Uh, there are people that think I'm great. There are people that think I'm terrible. And then when he sees the crowds, he goes up on a mountainside, and then his disciples come to him also. And so he's really teaching to two sort of different groups. There's people who are saying, you know, what about this Jesus? You know, does he have anything good to offer? And then there are those who have already given their lives, literally have, have left home and are following Jesus around in the countryside to be his. And so when you look at this continuum, I would contend that both of those views are actually accurate. And Jesus, like a good teacher, is beautifully teaching everybody. He is saying to those who, you know, who don't belong to the family of God, who haven't given their lives to God, yes, this standard is high. This is perfection, and it is, it is too good. <laughs> you aren't going to do this by yourself. But then to those who have been invited into the family of God, who have said, I give myself to you, Jesus. Uh, in Peter's words, he says to Jesus at one point, you have the very words of life. What else am I going to do but follow you? To those people, he is saying, let me show you the beauty of God's heart. Let me show you the fullness that is living for God. And so all the way through, if you're looking for it, I think you can see Jesus beautifully teaching everybody who's sitting in front of him. And if you hear sort of different messages, that's probably accurate because Jesus is talking to a very diverse crowd, okay? So uh, I want to say just a word about sort of that distinction and a little context for the Sermon on the Mount. You're going to hear time and time again allusions to God as Father. And Jesus is not the first to say that. In fact, it happens 15 times in the Old Testament. But that's 15 times in like a thousand pages, and I guess the Old Testament was written over hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, 20 minutes, he talks about your Father in heaven. 17 times, more than the entire Old Testament. So this is somehow central. And can you see that what he would be saying is he would be saying to these people over here, he would be saying, hey, you need to see the world in light of God as your Father in heaven. But to the people that are sort of on the fringe saying, should I follow? What does this look like? He's saying, becoming a child of God makes all the difference. Becoming that child, that's what makes everything different. So becoming and seeing things in light of God as Father. In fact, 16 of those 17 times, he doesn't just say Father in heaven. He says, your Father in heaven. That's really different. He wants, he wants his audience to hear, ah, oh, God is a good, good Father. He wants, he wants you to be his child. And so you're going to see that all the way through, and hopefully you'll sort of see Jesus' connecting theme there. Okay, so on to the Beatitudes themselves. Uh, we, oh, oh, 
I keep forgetting about my pictures. So I have one, one little story to tell you about these two things. And it was this sort of epiphany that I had about um, trying out for a team. So probably many of us have tried out for a team. And you know how this works. Nacogdoches Youth Soccer Association, the coaches get around, right? And they pick teams. And who do they pick first? Well, probably the best kids, right? <laughs> so, you know, and, and so the problem is, as, as you're seeing this standard and as you see, wow, this bar is really high, right? Jesus is going to say, it's not enough that you don't kill. I don't want you to be angry in your heart. It's not enough that you don't commit adultery. I don't, I don't want you to lust in your heart. It's not enough that you do right things. I want your heart to be absolutely pure. I mean, it's kind of like trying out for a team and realizing, you're trying out for basketball and you realize, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, LeBron James, maybe Wilt Chamberlain in his prime, you know, they're trying out too and you're not going to make it. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that's a fearful experience. Can you see how that might be crushing? But there is a catch. There is a catch. Nacogdoches Youth Soccer Association, oh, the coaches pick and they pick the best players, but they do something before that. The coach takes his own kids onto his team. Why, well, you know, you wouldn't get any coaches if they didn't get their own kids, right? Oh. So that's the picture that you should have here. The standard is perfection. You aren't gonna make the cut. I'm not gonna make the cut. But luckily, God takes his own kids onto his team to begin with, and that really makes all the difference because practice, that kind of standard is just crushing if you're wondering whether you're going to make the team. But practice is very different to somebody who knows that they're on the team. If you already know you're on the team, the sense of practice is to prepare you for the game, right? It's to let you know, ah, this is the right way to play. This is the best thing. Beloved, if if you are a child of God, these are life-giving words. You've already made the team. God's already taken you. He takes his kids, and he wants you to play well. And he's going to help us through the Sermon on the Mount to understand that. Okay, so done with that picture, on to the sermon. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So hopefully you notice two things to start with. One, if, if you were, you know, a Jew, and you'd come and you were listening to Jesus, that might be pretty shocking. All of those things start with this word blessed, which we'll talk about in a moment. But would you think that's the way to be blessed? You know, the blessed life, yeah. First off, be poor in spirit. Start some mourning. 
get meek. No, no. Um, you've got to remember, Matthew was written actually primarily to a Hebrew audience. And that is, that is not how they saw the blessed life. Now, that, that word blessed is really important, right? It's repeated nine times here. And uh, the word is makarios in Greek. And, and it's a little challenging because it does mean blessed, but it doesn't mean sort of God, you know, if you do this, God will sort of dump blessing on you. Uh, you know, that would mean that God is actually kind of holding back, right? He's holding back some of his blessing from his kids. Yeah, you really hold out on your kids, right? Eh, you know, I'll give you more food if you do the right thing. No, he's a good God. This is what Jesus is saying. What he's saying, though, in fact, some people translate that word, that blessed, as happy. Um, I, I read one author this summer that translates it as flourishing. You know, the idea is if you live this way, you're going to bloom. You will be blessed, not because God's withholding something and will dump it on you, but sort of blessing from beneath. This is the way to flourish. This is the way to live a full life. Incidentally, it's almost an exact parallel to Psalm 1, you know, where uh, the psalmist writes, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And it talks about in Psalm 1, he's like a tree planted beside streams of water. It's that image of flourishing. And in fact, you don't actually have to like be fluent in he Hebrew or Greek to, to understand this. If you just carefully read the Sermon on the Mount, you can sort of see Jesus is saying this throughout. So at the end of chapter 5, Jesus says of God, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So is God holding out? Jesus is saying God isn't holding out on you. He's so good, he's not even holding out on the evil guy. He's good to everybody. But then Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount, remember, with the house on the sand and the house on the rock. Probably a pretty apt metaphor for East Texas today, huh? Um, the re and he says the same thing happens to both houses, right? The rains come down, the streams rise, and the winds blow and beat against that house. One stands, one falls. Why? Is it because God's sort of like blessing from above? No, he's blessing from above everybody. He's a generous God. It's because one built their house in a sensible place. This is the blessed life. This, Jesus is telling us about what it means to live a life of flourishing. And so that's what we should hear. Okay, so now let's, let's focus in first on those first four lines. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This would be a real jolt to a Pharisee hearing this, to somebody who thought that they were righteous because of what they had done, because of themselves. We would call that self-righteous, right? To someone who is self-righteous, basically Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, you miss out on this blessing. This blessing is actually for one who recognizes that they're broken, who says, oh my, you know, I'm not like God. In fact, I, I'm selfish. I see this brokenness in me. Um, and Jesus says this all throughout. In fact, in Mark, I wrote down, um, in Mark 2, Jesus said, you know, healthy people don't need a doctor. The sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
you know, if you think you are perfect, these words are just going to hurt your feelings. Because Jesus is going to go systematically through and sort of say, no, you're not that perfect. But blessed is the one who feels poor in spirit because they are open to God's redemption. Um, and the Jesus says it in an interesting way. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom of heaven is a really special um, phrase. Matthew's the only gospel that uses it. He uses it 32 times. So it's, it's a big deal in Matthew. So kingdom probably is, is fairly clear. A, a kingdom is where the king has authority, right? So Jesus says the kingdom of God is among you. What's he mean by that? He means if you belong to the king, the king has authority where you dwell. So the kingdom of heaven, those, those who recognize that they are broken, they are the one who are invited into the place God has authority. And then he comes back to this phrase of heaven. And it's an interesting thing. He also, remember, he doesn't just say your father. He says your father in heaven. Your father in heaven again and again in the sermon. What's the thing about heaven? Well, if you think about it, heaven is higher. It's a higher perspective. It's a different perspective. And heaven is better. So it's funny. Uh, I think a lot of people, if you ask them, which do you prefer, the word God or the word heaven, they'd actually... Um, They'd actually prefer the word heaven. In fact, they did this survey of, of whether you believe in God and whether you believe of heaven, in heaven. It's actually more people believe in heaven than in God, which is interesting. I'd love to, I'd love to pick somebody's brain about that. But um, the point is, when Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven, this is a kingdom that is higher. It's a different perspective. His ways are higher than our ways. And it's better. It's a better way. It's a way of rejoicing. It's a way of freedom. It's a way of rest. Now, these Beatitudes, I think you'd be unwise to sort of pull one out and read it without the flow here. Because I think the flow is really important. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And Jesus is going to go a step further. He's going to say, blessed are those who mourn. Now, this, this isn't primarily, the, the Sermon on the Mount isn't primarily talking about physical things. He's not primarily talking about one who mourns because they've lost a loved one or because of a broken relationship. He's talking primarily about those who mourn spiritually. I just realized I'm broken in spirit. What is the right response? In fact, what you'll see here, in fact, is what we call the gospel, the good news. First, we have to recognize we have a problem. Then we have to be broken about it. If you recognize that you aren't like God and you don't care, that is not the path to flourishing. The path to flourishing is, in fact, might be counterintuitive to many in Jesus' audience. It is to recognize you are broken and to mourn that, to grieve. I don't want to be broken. I don't want to not be like God. That is the path to being comforted by God. That is the path to God and not away from God, is saying, God, I mourn. I mourn my brokenness. And the path continues. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Now, this, this would really fly in the face of somebody in Jesus' day who was, who was Jewish, okay? Because they believed in the kingdom of God, but they saw the kingdom of God coming forcefully, coming militarily, meaning monetary wealth. That's what they saw the kingdom at, uh, as. In fact, in the Gospels, you see in one place, uh, people try to make Jesus king by force. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, man, we're going to revolt. We're going to slay these Roman. We're going to get you to be king, Jesus. And that's exactly not what Jesus says. He jerks them back and he says, here is the flow. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are broken, not just to God, but meekness actually is interaction with other people, right? Meekness is the way that we interact with each other and toward God. We come humbly. Now, meek probably isn't a word you use every day. And uh, for the 98% of us that aren't fluent in biblical Greek, I want, to, I want to sort of just share, you know, throughout the semester, a few tricks that I, that I um, appreciate. Um, this is one of them. It's called BibleHub, uh, BibleHub.com. And uh, if you're trying to understand a word like this, what you can do is, uh, notice the font is too small, so you have to go there yourself to find it. Ha, ha, ha. Um, you can actually look at people who are fluent in biblical Hebrew, what dozens of them sort of said with this word. And I want you to, to not say, oh, I like this one, I don't like this one. I want you to understand these people are all trying to get you a sense of what this word means. So, uh, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are humble, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, Gent the gentle are blessed. How blessed are those who are humble? So, it's this idea of this whole being, being low, being humble, being gentle, not being presumptuous. And what's the result? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. First off, I want you to notice, who inherits things? Kids! Children! Right? So Jesus is saying, the way to get this is not to revolt against the Romans. It's not to push your boss harder for a raise. That's not going to bring happiness. That will not be the path to flourishing. The path to flourishing is meekness before the Lord, and then your God, who knows all things, who has all things, blesses his children. This is not something to be forcefully taken from God. This is something to be received as a child. And then really sort of the culmination, I would say, of the path of salvation, the good news, is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now recognize a Pharisee couldn't have said this. If you think you are right in right relationship with God to begin with, you don't need to hunger for something you already have. Blessed are those who say, I need righteousness. I'm hungry for it. I long for it. I recognize I'm poor in spirit. I mourn. I'm meek. Lord, I hunger and thirst for right relationship with you. They are the one who leave right. They are the ones 
who receive sonship through Jesus Christ. This is the good news. And so I think there's two big take-homes, and if you're, a, if you're an outline in the bulletin kind of kid, these are the fill-ins for the bulletin. Um, there's two things. One, this shows you the path of salvation. But it also shows you the goodness of God. God is not holding out on you. God is not trying to burden you. He wants you to be a child. He wants you to, to abandon yourself, this idea of achieving yourself. He wants to give you the earth. He wants to bring you over to sonship, to being a daughter. He wants to fill you with righteousness. And then Jesus moves on, and again, you don't want to take these out of order. Jesus moves on to, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a child of God? He's revealing God's heart to us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This is what it looks like to be a child of God. And, and recognize, I think, in in the Hebrew culture of that day, and probably in the age of high stakes and, of course, exams and tax, we have sort of the same tendency. We have this tendency to think of perfection in terms of a checklist. Well, got number one right, check. Number two, check. This is a test. This is what it looks like to be, to be a child of God. This is the fruit that your life should be bearing. But this is not a test of what you do. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are merciful six times a day, that would be easy to check off, or even of those who, who, who have mercy on people. It's those who are merciful. It's those who are pure in heart. It's those who are peacemakers. This is to be who we are. That will flow out in what we do. And we'll talk a little more about that because Jesus comes back to that again and again, that challenging line in the Lord's Prayer that we're going to get to maybe in about a month where he says, forgive us our debts as we, what? Forgive our debtors. Can't you just sort of like forgive me? And Jesus is saying, if you don't understand that God's mercy isn't just for you, God is merciful He's merciful to all. He wants you to be merciful for all. Maybe you didn't get God's mercy. Maybe you didn't understand God's mercy. Um, uh, the second one is hard. You know, there was, a, what would it be? Maybe a year or two ago, I, you know, I, I was thinking about my work and I was realizing, man, pretty much most of what I do at work, deep down, I'm kind of hoping people think I'm kind of, a good guy for doing it. You know, I want my, my co-workers to think well of me, like my boss to give me a raise, you know? And it's sort of like, that, that's not pure in heart, right? I want to do that. I want to do all things in response to a loving God. So what should we do? This is the cycle of the Beatitudes. I should recognize that I'm poor in spirit. I recognize that my heart isn't right. That means I'm poor in spirit, right? What do I do? I mourn. I grieve. I say to God, God, I want my heart to be right. 
And this is the beauty of the gospel. It's not just a one-time thing. This is every time we're broken and every time we're whole. This is for every day. And I say, God, I want to be like you. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what's Jesus' promise? I will accomplish this in you. Your job is to want to be right. Your job is to want to be a peacemaker, to be pure in heart, to be merciful. There's a lot to these. And um, frankly, uh, if, <laughs> if you want to do, you know, we could probably have coffee and talk for an hour just on each one of these. Does being pure in heart help you to see God more clearly? Absolutely. Um, is there more to uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Are there things that you can do to cultivate that hunger within you? Absolutely. I'd encourage you to study these passages in, in the week throughout. And um, one thing we're doing new, actually, as a church this semester, uh, we're actually, every week there's going to be a blog post from one person in the congregation. And uh, it'll come out, there's a weekly email. Remember those connect cards? If you want the weekly email, you can put your email address on those connect cards. Uh, there's a weekly email called Week to Week, and at the top of every one this semester, there'll be a little reflection just going a little deeper on some part of the Sermon on the Mount. This week it's on, how do I cultivate that hunger and thirst for righteousness in my life? There is so much richness here, but I think this is really the overarching point that I want to make. You don't earn this right relationship. This is sort of the fruit of being accepted as a son or a daughter. And I want to sort of personalize this just for a moment. These are my kids. Um, Abe's on the left, Amelia's on the right. Um, <clears throat> man, this was a three-temper tantrum morning. So, yeah, <laughs> those who are parents, just send up a prayer sometime today. Uh, but I just want to make this point. Why can't my kids earn my love? You might say, well, your kids look pretty young. You know, they're not earning much these days. Um, <laughs> and that's, that, that's true, right? And that's probably true for God also, right? I mean, he's God. He created everything. He knows everything. What are you going to give him? <laughs> you know, I mean, what are you going to give him? That's part of why we can't earn righteousness. But I contend that's not the main reason that you don't earn righteousness. My kids can't earn my love because they already have it, right? The day my kids were born, I loved them desperately. How much more does your Father in heaven love you? You aren't trying to earn his love. You already have it. He loves you desperately. He is a good, good father. The point is not to earn his love. You have that. It's how can our lives more reflect the goodness of God. And that will make us flourish. So this is sort of the point that I have here. Our hearts must become more and more like God's. And that is a really good thing. That's a really beautiful thing to see our hearts becoming more beautiful. Because that's how God's heart is. To see our hearts becoming more and more pure. Because his heart is pure. Another thing, if, if you're looking for another thing to look at in the week to come, you could look at these Beatitudes and look at, at them as a perfect description of Christ's character. It really bears out on a deep level, and 
If you have time, I'd love for you to do that. Let's jump along to that last section. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's a jolt to those people who are listening to Jesus. I mean, we're talking about the blessed life. Yeah, yeah. On your bucket list, is it to be persecuted? <laughs> yeah. Ah, I think I want a new car. I'd like a good job. Could I get some persecution with that? No, <laughs> that's not on most people's blessed list. But that's what Jesus says. And then, this is interestingly enough, the only beatitude that he reiterates. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hardship is not a surprise in battle. And we live in a place where two kingdoms are in conflict. You are invited to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. There is a kingdom of earth that sees the world differently, that tries to achieve things differently. And we are invited to follow our king into this spiritual reality that is two kingdoms in conflict. I had a buddy I played football with in high school um, who fought in uh, uh, Iraq in uh, the, the second Gulf War. And he came back and he talked at our high school and he talked about going 73 days without a shower. Um, does that surprise you? <laughs> People are shooting at you. Hmm, I think I'm going to take off all my clothes. No. <laughs> Hardship is not a surprise in battle. We should not be surprised. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You should see this a part of flourishing, a part of moving forward, because frankly, if you don't go into the war zone, there's probably not going to be quite as much battle, right? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. There might be a lot of facets to that, but I want to cover the most important. Let's imagine that your dad is rich. You're going to inherit everything. Everything. What's left to get? What kind of reward is left to get? I'll tell you. It's your father's approval. It's your father. Can you imagine you and me going home, going into heaven, seeing God in unveiled glory, seeing untold angels worshiping him, and having him look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. That will be a great reward. That's what our hearts are to long for. And so I want to wrap up here, not just with sort of a summary of the Beatitudes, but I think where Jesus is going with the whole Sermon on the Mount, we're going to come back to this, okay? But I think it's important to sort of see this as a whole and to say, well, well where, where should I be longing? What should I be pushing for? And this is, I have three things. The first is this. I think we start by treasuring God as our Heavenly Father. To treasure Him, to see Him as our Father. And that's a really good thing. We move from that to trusting that His ways are wonderful. These aren't just unpleasant hoops to jump over. This is the flourishing life. This is what your loving Father longs for. This is His heart for you. And finally, we flourish by following wholeheartedly. 
not just following the actions, but believing with our heart and allowing God to change our heart through the gospel. It's been really fun. Thank you for uh, walking through this with me. Let me pray, then we'll finish in worship. Oh Lord, I thank you so much for these words. I thank you, Jesus, for preaching this sermon. I pray that these words wouldn't return void, but they would accomplish the purpose for which you sent them, that they would achieve what you desire, that you would allow them to bloom in us and to allow us to see you rightly, to respond by trusting that your ways are good, and to flourish by giving our whole selves to you. We love you, Jesus. Amen.